First Peter, chapter 2. We are returning to our study of this very, very marvelous book. For those of you who are joining us maybe for the first time, and First Peter is a, a fundamental book in the New Testament. It's written to a specific audience, first century Christians who are being persecuted severely by the Roman Empire, and more particularly by Nero, who has managed to convince uh, the populace of Rome and the Roman Empire that these Christians are guilty of heinous crimes, chief of which is they burned down Rome and a number of other things. So as you might imagine, these brand new Christians, many of whom are brand new, suffering terrific persecution, terrific suffering, terrific deprivation in their lives, would be wondering, where's God? Where's God? Why am I suffering? Why are we the object of all of this wrath and turmoil? Why is the government coming down on us? And so Peter writes this letter, and actually two letters, First and Second Peter. And they are really an effort to encourage them and to strengthen them in the face of the trials and difficulties they're facing. And really, First Peter is kind of like a catechism. If you grew up uh, in the Lutheran Church or the Catholic Church, like I did, and in some of the uh, some of the the, the uh, uh, more traditional expressions of Christianity, uh, you grew up probably with a catechism, learning basic doctrines and reading and answering and memorizing questions and answers and such, and getting a firm foundation. I thank God for my Catholic education and my Catholic background because. I understood now, uh, like never before, how it tutored me. It tutored me like the law and brought me to Christ. And so this is like a catechism. And it instructs these early Christians in the basics of the faith. And so you and I, as we study through this book, are going to learn once again and rehearse the basics of the faith. After all, many, many of us are new to the church. We're new to biblical Christianity, and it's important that we have some basic understandings. Hence, 1 Peter. Plus, we may be headed for some difficult times, and so it's good to know what to do, what to do in the face of persecution. Okay? So, with that, uh, let me just recap real quickly. The first 12 verses of chapter 1, Peter talks to them about the great salvation that God has worked. God has worked it. God has called them. God has saved them in spite of themselves. And they have inherited a marvelous and a great salvation. And that salvation is kept for them, protected by God's power in heaven. Isn't that glorious? So no matter what we face, we are not hopeless. There is a great God who is with us, who has saved us, who keeps us. And will take us through our trials and our sufferings. Great, great testimony to those early Christians and to us. And then beginning in verse 13 of chapter 1, Peter then begins to describe how do we respond. God has given us this great inheritance, this eternal inheritance. How shall we respond? And Peter tells us. He says, first, be holy because he is holy. Be holy because He is holy. Strive for holiness in your life. Strive for holiness. Strive to be like Him. 
Now, he's at work in you. He's at work in you. He's going to make you like him. But you have a part. You strive. I want to be holy like God. The second thing he says, the second great response to this great salvation is to love your brothers and sisters. Love one another deeply from the heart, he says. So on first, respond to God. How should I live? Holy, holy, be holy. My second response is towards my brothers and sisters. Love, love one another deeply from the heart. And the third response we're going to look at this morning. The third response is included in the first three verses of 1 Peter chapter 2. And in these three, you could sum all of Christian living, if you think about it, you can sum all of Christian living up in those three dynamics. Be holy, love one another, and the third one we're going to look at this morning. What shall we crave? What shall we crave? Now, the, the sermon title is One Thing to be Craved. A good subtitle is Got Milk? <laughs> Got Milk? So I want you to read these three verses with me. Chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3 of First Peter. Therefore... That's a rich word, therefore. We're going to explore that next week. By the way, this is a little three-part series. First part this morning, next, second part next week, and the third part the following week. Now, it's going to take us three weeks to plumb these three verses. Now, I want you to know, as I talk to you this morning, out of, the, out of what we're going to read and study this morning together, many of you are going to go, oh, man, that's me. Oh, man, that's me. That's okay. I want you to feel the brunt of that. Okay? So that you'll come back next week and get the solution. Because I'm going to pose the problem, and next week I'm going to give you the solution. Isn't that exciting? Okay. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Kind of like being holy, huh? Like newborn babies. Like what? Newborn babies. Now, we're going to focus on verse 2 this morning, so I want you to underline these verses. Like newborn babies. Notice the word he uses here in the NIV. Crave. Crave. Circle that word in your Bible. Crave. Pure spiritual milk. So that, by it, you may grow up in your salvation. How many want to grow up in their salvation? How many want to mature? What should you need to crave? Pure spiritual milk. Verse 3. Now, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Oh my, oh my. Marvelous. May I suggest to you the genuine godliness. What did I say? Genuine godliness. Genuine godliness, being like God. Genuinely, being like God is always characterized by a love for and a delight in the Word of God. Do you delight? Do you have a delight for and a, and a love for the Word of God? That's our question this morning. That's our question. That's all we're focusing on. Do I have a love for and a delight in the Word of God? That's our issue. Jesus said an interesting thing in John's Gospel in chapter 8. 
He said, he who belongs to God hears what God says. Hears. The idea is, takes it in, cherishes it, loves it, wants more of it. He who belongs to God hears what God says. How many parents do we have? Parents, do you want your kids to hear what you say? (laughs) Yeah, we want them to hear it, right. Do we want it to go in one ear and out the other? No, we want them to hear it. Implicit in that is we want you to love it. I want you to cherish it. I want you to delight in my words because then chances are you'll do them. Right? In that same chapter, John chapter 8, Jesus says this. He says the true believer keeps God's word. How can I keep it if I don't hear it? And how can I hear it if I don't delight in it? If I don't love it? You see, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7, verse 22, expressed this same love for, the same delight in uh, God's word that's characteristic of the heart of the believer when he said, in my inner being, I delight in God's law. In my inner being, I cherish it. I delight in it. It's the joy of my life. Job. In chapter 23 of Job, verse 12, many of you know about Job. You've read Job. If anybody, if anybody had a reason to be crabby, (laughs) humanly speaking, if anybody on the face of the earth, humanly speaking, had a reason to not delight in God's word, it would be Job. And yet listen to what Job says in this verse. I have not departed from the commands of his lips, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily bread. Was God's word important to Job? More than his daily bread. I'm going to eat spiritually before I eat physically. The psalmist in Psalm 1, verse 2, the great, very, very great first psalm, The psalmist says this, that the godly man is blessed because his delight is where? In the law of the Lord. That's where his delight is. And in it he what? Meditates day and night. He is so delighted, so taken, so taken with God's word that he meditates in it day and night. That doesn't mean that he's got a Bible in front of him 24 hours a day. It just means he, he's, he's spending time and he takes it in. He delights in it. And all day long, wherever he goes, he's meditating, he's thinking, he's ruminating, he's, he's cherishing it. God's Word. Psalm 19, verse 10. David, the psalmist, he says that the Word of God to him is more precious than, that is sweeter than honey, honey from the honeycomb. More precious than gold? Whoa! Sweeter than honey? Remember the, 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 the greatest delicacy in the ancient Near East? Honey. Sweet. Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 16. The words of Jeremiah, the prophet, who after years and years and years of ministry, 
Never had one convert. If anybody had a reason, humanly speaking, to feel discouraged about his ministry and discouraged about God and what God wanted to do through him, it would be Jeremiah. Not one convert after years of ministry. Nobody listened to him, paid attention to him. In fact, he lost his life over it all. Listen to Jeremiah. Speaking to God, your words were my joy and my heart's delight. Your words were my joy and my heart's delight. Beloved, these verses and many, many more point out that it is characteristic. It is characteristic of the heart of the believer to delight in God's Word. To delight in God's Word. And no doubt, the richest text, the richest text that points this out is found in Psalm 119. Turn there with me. I want you to read these verses with me. Psalm 119, page 628. Of course, you all have a Bible like me. Psalm 119. I want you to mark these verses in your Bible. They're going to be helpful to you when you work on your devotional. Look at verse 16 with me. I delight in your decrees. I what? I delight in your decrees, he says. I will not neglect your word. Mm. Verse 24. Turn to verse 24 with me. Your statutes are my delight. They are my counselors. Where do you go to get counsel? The statutes of God or your local psychologist? Oh, there he goes again. Verse 35, direct me in the paths of your commands, for there I find delight. Where does he find delight? In the paths of God's commands. Look at verse 47. For I delight in your commands because I what? Love them. Look at verse 48. I reach out my hands for your commands, which I love, and I meditate on your decrees. Look at verse 72. Turn over to verse 72. We see this theme rehearsed again and again and again. The law from your mouth is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. Look at verse 92. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Oh my, what a verse. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I would have had no hope. I'd have been sunk for sure. Verses 97 through 104. Just read this with me. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. Who would like to be wiser than their enemies? huh? Mm. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statues. Who would like to have more insight than all their teachers? <laughs> yeah. You meditate on his statutes. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. 
I have kept my feet from every evil path so that I might obey your word. I have not departed from your laws, for you yourself have taught me how sweet are your promises to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hate every wrong path. And you can go on and on and on throughout that psalm and see that same sentiment reflected over and over and over. Let me ask you a question, please. Does that express your heart? Does that express your heart? Is that the way you feel? Do you find your heart crying? Oh, how I love your word. Oh, how I love your word. Mm. Is God's word your delight? More precious than gold? More precious than silver? Sweeter than honey? Honey from the honeycomb? God's word? That's the question before us. That's the question that Peter poses to us. That's the question that he challenges us with. And it's important that we think about that question. Turn back to 1 Peter chapter 2. Look with me again at verse 2. He says, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk. There is to be in the heart of the believer the love of the word of God. The love for, the desire for, the create, craving for, if I can say that, the word of God. That's Peter's intent. And by the way, the construction of the verse is such that it's not a suggestion. Peter's not suggesting that we crave the word. He's commanding us to crave the word. Commanding us. Why? Why should it be a command? Why does it have to be a command? Because we don't naturally crave it. Isn't that true? Does this flesh naturally crave the Word of God? No. You've heard the saying, the, the, the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. No, we have to be commanded, bring the flesh in line. Come on, we're going to read the Bible. We're going to read the Bible. We're going to read the Bible. The flesh goes, oh, I'm too tired, I'm too tired. Oh. It's a command. It's in the imperative mood in the Greek. Very, very important. Now remember, Peter is, what Peter said up to this point, uh, from verses 23 through 25, remember the context? The context is you've been born again. You've been born again. Not of what kind of seed? Perishable, but of imperishable. Imperishable seed. And how does he describe the imperishable seed? The living, enduring word of God. You've been born again by the word of God. The seed that's sown into you has brought forth new life. And should you then not have a strong desire for that word that has given you life? Does that make sense? If you've been born again by the word, if it's given you new life, wouldn't, you, wouldn't it make sense then to crave it and to desire more of it? If it's a source of life? Absolutely. A craving for this word of God. And yet, I think you will acknowledge with me that in many of our lives, there is a lacking of this kind of desire. 
The truth be known, there's a lacking, there is not the craving for the Word of God that Peter describes in many, many lives. So many of us can go day after day after day, week after week even, and our Bibles lay fallow. Unread. Oh, when we walk past it, it goes, read me, read me, read me. But we just walk past it. There's no love, there's no craving to read, to study, to meditate on the Word of God. But this is Peter's exhortation to us. It's so important to us. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk. Now, some of the other translations are a little bit different. The New American Standard has craved the pure milk or desire the pure milk of the word. This idea of craving, this idea of longing and desiring intensely, we're familiar with that. All of us are. In Psalm 42, do you remember the craving same word is used in that passage that Peter, Peter uses. Same word. As the deer pants for streams of water, as he craves for water, so my soul, what? Pants for you, O God. My soul pants for you, thirsts for you, God. Thirsts. So just like we, we thirst for God, we thirst for His Word. We crave His Word. We crave His Word. And again, the word that Peter uses that's translated crave in the NIV or long for in one of the other translations, it's a very, very intense word in, in the Greek language which the English is translated. Very intense word. It describes an, uh, a, a recurring thirst a recurring longing, a desire, literally an insatiable passion. Ooh, is that too strong? Do you have an insatiable passion for the Word of God? Peter's exhorting us on. On to that strong, passionate, consuming desire. And for many of us, that's foreign. That's foreign. Crave, crave, crave the word. We all know what it's like to crave. How many have ever been in love? Oh. So few? Oh my. You're missing out. What a glorious thing to be in love. And to have those strong desires, that craving for that person, and to be with them, and to hear their voice, and mm, the longings of love. <laughs> and shouldn't they continue? Shouldn't they continue that longing for love? And, yes. Many of us understand the cravings of the flesh for, for when we are hungry or thirsty. We had, a, we had a, a, a plate of Krispy Kreme donuts the other day. 
And I'm, I'm on a diet right now, and, and those donuts were s- unbelievable. I can't, I, the, the craving was almost overwhelming to me. I could feel myself slipping. And yes, I gave in. <laughs> and I figure if I'm going to give in, I'm not just going to have one. <laughs> I pigged out. I sinned grievously. (laughs) We understand cravings. We know what it's like to long for a loved one who's missing from us. Maybe who's passed on. Many of us understand what it means to long for and desire the uh, just a child maybe who's gone wayward who's left our influence and they're, they're out there doing stuff that we can see, they can't see, that is going to lead to devastation in their life. And how we long for them to come back from that waywardness. How we long for them to be reconciled to us, to our love, and to a true faith in Jesus. Many of us have people in our life who are yet unsaved, and we long for them. We long for them. We love them so much. We care about their life so much that we can almost taste them coming to know Jesus. A hunger for them. We know these cravings. We know these longings. And yet Peter says to us in this passage that we are to crave. We are to have an intense desire. An intense desire. An intense desire for what? Before you answer, for something pure, something pure. I have an intense desire for something pure. Something untainted, unadulterated, something pure, uncontaminated. Something like The pure milk from a mother's breast. The pure, uncontaminated, untainted milk from a mother's breast. How much purer can you get? We're to have a longing for something like that. As a newborn baby craves that, we should crave pure spiritual milk. Something that is like milk, a source of life and continuing nourishment. A source of life. He's already told us that the milk of the word now, the word is what? Our source of life. We've been born of imperishable seed. But it's also a source of what? Continuing nourishment. That we may grow up. So Peter says we're to crave something like pure milk. Pure spiritual milk. Or literally from the Greek it is spiritual pure milk. Spiritual pure milk. It's not real milk. Spiritual pure milk. Now we imply that it's the milk of the word, don't we? 
And we have a reason to do that. And some of the translations, like the New American Standard, will translate that. Technically, the phrase of the word is not in the original Greek text or the, tra- the text that we translate from to the English. The word logikon is the word that's in the text. And that's the word that the NIV translates spiritual. It's an adjectival form. It means, very simply, being of the word or belonging to the word. Logikon. And it's derived from the same root word, lego, that we get the word logos, from which we translate word. The word of God. The logos of God. Lego means to speak or to say. So God has spoken his word, and the word became flesh. John 1.14. So we have this word, spiritual. It's spiritual. Pure milk. But it's implied that this is the word of God. It's the Bible. That's what we're to long for. That's what we're to crave. That's what we're to crave. Pure spiritual milk. And the context dictates that also. Remember, if you go back in the few verses, he's talking about what? The word. Born again of spiritual seed, right? Imperishable seed. He said... The living, enduring word of God. This is the word that was preached to you. So it's natural then to continue the thought that once we've been born again, we should continue to what? Desire, crave that which gave us birth to continue to nourish us. Am I making sense? Are you with me? Okay. Very, very important. So we are to have a craving for the word of God Pure spiritual milk. The pure spiritual milk is a word that flows out of the breast of the word of God, if I can use that expression. Pure. Unadulterated, uncontaminated, untainted. They say, well, I agree. Well, but you don't understand. The word of God is being tainted all over the place. It's being adulterated all over the place. I'm here to tell you, The word of God is all you need. His counsel. His counsel. Many of you know that I am adamantly, adamantly opposed to psychology. It has permeated the church. And it is destroying lives. Because why? Psychology makes it all about you. It makes it all about you. Not Jesus. Not Jesus. I had a couple last night. I was talking to them last night after the service. They were on the radio. They heard on the radio the Minerth and Meyer uh, um, advertisements. And 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 I'm just I just I'm adamantly opposed to that because they dilute the Word of God. They adulterate the Word of God. They put a a, a veneer of Christianity over secular thinking, human wisdom. They sent $25 in for a 20-minute tape. I said, my tapes are only $2, and you get an hour. I said, send it back, get your money back. Don't listen to what they say. Open your Bible. 
start reading your Bible. Pure, unadulterated, untainted word of God. Not with human wisdom. Not with the philosophies of this age. Not with the religious mentality of of people. God wrote this book to us in a very simple form. When you read it, and you read it, and you read it, and you've got the Spirit of God in you, the Spirit of God just makes things so clear, you can't miss it. Now, you may have to do a little background reading. You may have to get some some kind of uh, Bible history books and get some historical context for some of these things to understand some difficult passages. But by and large, God doesn't mean for His Word and His will and His mind to be a mystery to us. He's written a big book. He says, crave it. Crave it. Don't go running off looking for someone to solve your problem. God is in the business of solving problems. They said to me, they said, well, we we have anger issues and we're working through our anger issues. I said, stop right there. You can't work through your anger issues because it's not anger to begin with. It is fear. You're afraid. We're all afraid. We're scared to death. We'll see how many people show up on the street today. We're afraid. And so we get angry when people start pushing our fear buttons. Whose job is it to change me? Did he say he would? Right. My job is what? To walk in obedience to him. My job is to trust him. He works the changes. Isn't that delightful? You have to work on your anger issues. Love Jesus. He works on you. I don't know how much simpler it can get. God doesn't mean for it to be real complicated. I believe when we get to heaven, he's going to go, I didn't mean for it to be that complicated. Crave the unadulterated, pure spiritual mind. Notice, he does not say, this is important. Peter does not say, read the word. You say, wait a minute. You're confusing me here. Stay with me. He does not say, read the word. Paul says that in 1 Timothy 4.13. Peter does not say, study the word. Paul says that in 2 Timothy 2.15. Peter does not say meditate on the word, as Joshua 1.8 puts it. Peter does not say teach the word, as 1 Timothy 4.11 commands. Peter does not say preach the word, as 2 Timothy 4.2 instructs. He does not say search the word, as we see illustrated by the Bereans in Acts chapter 17, verse 11. And he does not say hide the word, as the psalmist does in Psalm 119, verse 11. Question, are all those things important? Are they vital? Are they critical? Yes, they are. But there's something even more basic than that. Let me suggest to you that before you can read it, before you can study it, before you can meditate on it, and then teach it, preach it, search it, hide it, you have to what? Desire it. That's right. 
Beloved, if you don't desire it, you're not going to preach it. You're not going to study it. You're not going to hide it. You're going to care less. You got to desire it first. That's basic. That's fundamental. That Bible will just sit there and sit there and sit there. And then when you're called upon, when you're called upon to give a reason for what you believe and why you believe it, you'll be bereft of anything to say. You'll be ashamed. You have to desire it. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I want you to see this verse. This is a very important verse. I want you all to turn there if you have a Bible. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 10. The context, Paul is writing to these Thessalonians. They're confused about the second coming and end times. And, and so Paul's kind of lining up some of the circumstances. He's talking about the man of lawlessness has to be revealed. And then he says in verse 10, speaking of those who are going to perish, he says, in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing, every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. Now this is very important. They perish because they refused to what? Love the truth. Do you see that? Underline those words. Why do they, why do they perish? They refuse to love the truth. Paul is telling us, speaking of salvation, that those who do not believe, he's saying that those people aren't Christians, they aren't saved, they've been deceived. You are deceived and you're easily deceived if you're not a lover of the truth. You'll believe anything. Let me press it a little step further. Before you can even be saved. Before you can even be saved. What do you think you have to demonstrate in your life? That you're a lover of the truth. You can't become a Christian. It's impossible unless you're a person who loves the truth. Unless you're a person who says, I want to know the truth. And I'm willing to do whatever it takes, suspend whatever bias I have. I want to know the truth. Don't we all have biases? Prejudices? And if you're going to know the truth, it's required of you that you suspend your biases, suspend your prejudices, whether they be cultural, religious, philosophical, whatever. Suspend them and examine everything that purports to be truth because there's only one truth. There's only one truth. Now, we live, we live, you probably heard this phrase, we live in a, in a, a postmodern era. We live in, a, in an era that no longer has as its basis a, a Judeo-Christian ethic. We live in an era where everything is relative. There's no more standards, no more absolutes, no more clearly delineated right and wrong. You talk to people on the street, the average person on the street, and, and they're going to they're gonna defend their position, how, no matter how irrational it may be to you, they're going to defend it as well, it's right to me. Purely subjective. There's no more appeal to objective truth and objective reality. So even now, truth is called into question. It harkens back to Pilate, Pontius Pilate, when he said, what's truth? When Jesus was standing before him. That's the era in which we're living now. 
But may I suggest to you, you must be, in order to be saved, you must be a person who demonstrates a love for the truth. I want to know the truth. I want to know the truth. Now, I used to witness to people, and, and I still do all the time, and I would find that as I'd witness to people and try to tell them about Jesus, about becoming a Christian, why I'm a Christian, all this stuff, invariably, invariably, they'd argue with me. And they'd start running me in circles. This argument to that argument to this thing to that thing. And I'd go, oh, blah, blah, blah. And then it dawned on me one day. They don't really want to know the truth. They just want to argue with me, frustrate me, and get me off their case. So I changed my strategy. I don't argue with them anymore. I say to them, when I'm talking to them, and they start giving me this, these, these arguments, these questions, I go right, cut right to the chase. And I say to them, let me ask you a question. Do you really want to know? Let's not waste your time, my time. Do you really want to know the truth? Or are you just giving me these red herring arguments to derail me here? Let's not waste our time. If you really want to know the truth, then give me one hour of your time, and I'll sit down with you, and I'll walk you through the Bible from the first page to the last. I'll show you the Bible is true. Now, you have to know the Bible to be able to do that. How do you, how do you get to know the Bible? You crave it. You're never going to know it unless you first crave it. You feed on it. It nourishes your soul. It's not just mechanically reading it. And we'll talk about this. We're going to talk about this in much more detail next week. It's craving it. So that you have resources to give to people who want to know the truth. And now think of it. That's a loaded question. If you think about it, you say to somebody, do you really want to know the truth? Now, if they would stop and think, they're saying, now, if I say no, I'm going to look really stupid. <laughs> so I better say yes. But if I say yes, I have a dilemma. I've got to listen to this guy. He's got me. Do you, follow, do you follow that? Does that make sense? Simple. Do you want to know the truth? Are you a lover of the truth? See, if you're not a lover of the truth, you're going to be deceived. You're going to get sucked into every kind of lie and every kind of deception. You disprove Christianity. Every single person in the history of the church, even the most committed, and there's really no such thing as an atheist, really committed atheist or agnostic, who has been willing to set aside their bias and examine the truth of Jesus' claims and the Bible, they've come away saying, it's true. And almost invariably, they become Christians. Because what? They've discovered the truth. For the first time in their life, they've discovered the truth. And now their whole life rests on a solid foundation. For years and years and years and years, as I grew up, I wanted to know 
I had a sense there has to be one thing, one thing, one thing I can hold on to and I can trust will never, ever fail me and let me down. I didn't know what it was. And I went from this thing to that thing, from this thing, from that thing, from this relationship to that relationship. Guess what? They all failed. They all had inherent weaknesses. I could never fully trust myself to another person or to another institution. And then guess what? I discovered Jesus. I discovered the Bible. And the Bible has proved over and over and over and over faithful and true and dependable. It's amazing. And so I thought, what better thing could I do? Devote my life to the Bible. So there you have it. You got to be a lover of the truth if you're going to be saved. Does this sound anything like crave pure spiritual milk? Love the truth. Do those, do those terms seem like they could fit together? Crave spirit, pure spiritual milk. Love the truth. Love the truth. Crave. Could we use those as interchangeable terms? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's no greater experience of the love of the truth than at the moment of your salvation. No greater experience than at the moment of your salvation. Beloved, when the truth floods into your heart, fills your life with a knowledge of the truth, that now, now, now your sins are forgiven and you have a new life, a brand new start. The slate has been washed clean. All my sins are forgiven and they're forgotten. God doesn't bring them up again. We bring them up. He doesn't. Man, I tell you, I've done some horrible things in my life. It's things I'm ashamed of. But to know the exhilaration that my sins have been forgiven, I have been given eternal life. Beloved, that truth just thrilled my heart. And just as it thrilled my heart in the beginning, shouldn't it thrill my heart today? Nothing should change, huh? We should just keep on. We should keep on. Do you remember when uh, John, in the book of Revelation... Many of you have read the book of Revelation. In the first couple of chapters, he writes to the seven churches. And he writes in chapter 2, beginning of chapter 2, he writes to the church at Ephesus. And he commends the church at Ephesus. He says, says, you do this, and you do this, and you do this. Oh, great church. He says, but I have one thing. One thing where you fall short. Do you remember what the one thing was? You've left your first love. Now, stay with me. You've left your first love. Could we say, that part of our first love is the love of the truth. Because when I first got saved, I loved the truth. I loved it. The love of the truth filled my heart. Could I say that? Is that fair? Should that change? Of course not. Of course not. And yet, it is so sad that for so many Christians, that first love has what? Waned. The love of the truth. No longer craving pure spiritual milk. No longer hungering for the word as we once did early on. You've left your first love. How sad it is 
that so many don't have a hungry heart for the Word of God. How sad it is that we don't delight in it. How sad it is that it's no longer more precious than silver and gold, sweeter than honey, honey from the honeycomb. How sad it is that people and even many Christians today will spend time and money on physical exercise, the pursuit of fame and fortune and glory and self-aggrandizement of every sort. Expend all their resources on all those things and yet seem to have little or no appetite for the Word of God. How sad. How sad. But Peter says we are to what? Crave the pure spiritual milk of the Word. We're to crave the truth, just like way back in the beginning when we first got saved. Physical birth brings into this world a precious little life, doesn't it? Physical birth brings into this world a precious little one. And when that little one is born and comes into this world, the great craving of that little one's life is to have what? Have a Big Mac? (laughs) A double order of fries. A bag of potato chips. What's the craving of that little one? No, not Krispy Kreme. I guarantee you. No, the craving of that little one is for its mother's breast and the pure milk that comes from that breast. You watch that brand new little baby. You watch that brand new little baby laid on that mother's breast first time, first time, and begins to take that milk. And that baby is at infinite rest. There is no more beautiful picture in all of human affection than the sight of that baby at that mother's breast at peace. Crave pure spiritual milk of the Word like that baby craves that pure milk. Do you crave the Word of God like a newborn baby craves that milk? Do you hunger for it? Is it to the point where if you do not have that time in the Word that there's a great void and a great emptiness in your life? If the answer is yes, then you're on the right track. You're responding correctly to the gift of salvation. You're craving the Word, as Peter tells us. But if the answer is no, and I'm sure in many cases, if you're honest, the answer is no. There is not that craving. Then we need to change some things. How can it happen? How can it happen that I can get to the place where I do not crave, I do not desire, I do not love His Word? How can that happen? I'll tell you one way it happens. We're too busy eating junk food. I'm not joking. We're too busy eating junk food. Junk food from every source. Junk food is being spewed from many, many pulpits, unfortunately. Pastors and ministers who are not seriously students of the Word of God and they're feeding their congregation flavored sawdust 
junk food that comes from books and magazines that is not biblical. Junk food that comes out of the television, newspapers, movies, junk food. It's all around us. And we have imbibed of all of that junk food. We've satiated ourselves to the point where no longer do we have an appetite. I'm full. I've eaten so many donuts, I can't eat my dinner. (laughs) I'm full. I know it's good food. I know I should eat it. I know it's health for my body. I know the donuts are good for me, but I've eaten so many donuts, I can't eat the good food. Am I making sense? Ask yourself. Could it be that I don't have an appetite for the Word of God, a craving for the Word of God, because because I'm so full of junk food? How can we get back? How can we get back to the place where we desire the pure spiritual milk of the Word? How can we get back to the point where Bible study is not a duty, when Bible study is not a chore, when Bible study is not done out of fear, fear that God will smack us because we're not in His Word? How can we get back to the place where reading and studying and meditating on the Word of God is the delight in our heart? How can we get back to that place? Next week. Part two. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your instruction. Thank you for the challenge to our life. Lord, help us to understand these things and help us, Lord, to take ownership. Each and every one, Father, that do not have a hunger and a craving for your word, Lord, speak to us. Speak to us. Speak to us. Don't let us ignore these admonitions. Now, I want you to stay in your seats because I've gone a little bit long, and I appreciate your patience. I know that you love the Word of God, right? You could sit here all day and listen to it, couldn't you? So we're going to take communion. And if you're with us and you're a Christian, you're visiting with us, we invite you to take communion with us. We take it corporately, everyone together at the same time. The communion servers are, are ready now to serve us. The protocol is very simple. They'll pass the trays down through the rows, the... Matzah will come first. Take a little piece of the matzah out of the tray. The cup of juice will come second. Take a little cup. Hold on to them. We're going to wait till everyone is served. And once everyone is served, I'll come back. We'll take communion together. But in the meantime, I want you to think on the things we've talked about. These elements, this little piece of matzah, this little cup of juice, remind us of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. The Bible describes him as the word of God, the perfect expression of God's mind and heart to us. The Bible says that the word became flesh. So we're to focus on Jesus. Remember, it's all about him, isn't it? It's all about him. And ask him if you find yourself in a place where, where quite frankly, you do not have this craving we've been talking about for God's word. Say, God, help me. Help get me back to the place, or at least get me to the place, if not back, where I'll have a craving for your word. And when everyone's served, I'll come back. We'll take communion together.